Welcome to The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. Today, as part of our family, you will experience the life-changing and spirit-nurturing Word of God. Please enjoy this time with us as we're committed to helping you grow in knowledge, grow in faith, and grow in God. St. Mark Baptist Church, you grow here. Welcome back to the Grow Factor Podcast, a broadcast ministry of the St. Mark Baptist Church here in Little Rock, Arkansas. My name is Pastor John. I'm the Connections Pastor here at St. Mark. And I'm joined in this episode by our discipleship pastor, Pastor Thomas, Ernest Thomas. He is going to be joining us on this episode as we continue to work through a series that we're calling Make It Make Sense. This year, we've been talking about digging deeper in scripture. We've gone through how to study the Bible. We talked about how to observe scripture, how to interpret scripture and to apply scripture. And for the past several weeks, we've been talking about Christ-centered application. Well, this week is going to be no different. We're going to talk about the tabernacle of God. You don't want to miss this episode because we're going to get all the way into the details and it's going to help you. So, Pastor Thomas, we've been spending a good amount of time looking at Old Testament texts, starting with the creation, moving through the Old Testament, helping people identify Christ in the Old Testament. Previously, we've talked about how the Old Testament is harder for people to read just because uh, it seems antiquated and dated. We've worked through why that's not necessarily true and then how you can go about reading it. But what we want people to land on is actually finding Christ in the text, because that's our ultimate goal here, right? Correct. I'm super excited about the topic for tonight. Uh, There is no better subject matter. If you're talking about looking for types, pictures of Mm. Christ in the Old Testament, Mm. I don't think there's a better platform than the tabernacle. It gives us a pretty complete picture of who Christ is and his the fulfillment of his ministry in the Old Testament. I think the tabernacle really bubbles up to the top when we're talking about the picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so we've been talking about the big picture of scripture a lot on this podcast. We talked about how all the scriptures just woven together. Well, as we study the tabernacle tonight, I want you all to keep the big picture in mind because What you'll see is since creation, God has always desired to dwell and to commune with his people. When you see Adam in the garden, uh, Genesis 3, 8 says that God is walking around in the cool of the day as if he wants to have a conversation with Adam. And by that time, the fall has occurred and Adam is now hiding and God is like, hey, the communion that I set this garden up for now has been broken. So what we're going to see with the tabernacle is God is trying to, in a very temporary sense, trying to reestablish that connection that was broken in Genesis. Yeah. uh, You know, when you read the Bible, I think one of the main truths that come up when you really read it correctly is that God has always desired authentic relationship with mankind. Mm -hmm. That's why he created us. And even though we fell into sin, that did not take away 
the purpose of our creation and, and the divine desire that God has to have authentic relationship with us. That's why I always say Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. It's not about do's or don'ts. Mm. It's about spending quality time with, our, with yeah. our Savior and our Father. That's good. So before we dive into a discussion about the tabernacle, I think the first question that we need to answer is what exactly is the tabernacle? You know, we have churches these days that are named the Tabernacle of Praise or uh, Tabernacle International Church. Well, what what is a tabernacle according to Scripture? And if you are a Bible uh, scholar or someone who loves Scripture, you do understand that there's a temple that's also um, talked about in Scripture in terms of God's presence. So what is the difference between a tabernacle and and a temple in scripture. So let's talk about what a tabernacle is, Pastor Thomas. Yeah, well, um, th- there's some main differences. First of all, the tabernacle, the, it, it means a meeting place. Yeah. Um, and, and then second, or dwelling place uh, also. Uh, but the tabernacle was a portable building, if you want to use that portable structure, because it was given to them when they were in the wilderness. Mm. And, but, but it was to represent God's presence in the midst of them as they moved from the wilderness onto the promised land, that God wanted them to worship him, worship him mm-hmm. and to understand that he would still be in their midst even as they were moving about in this wilderness experience. So even before they get to the promised land, God never says, I'll, I'll wait until you get to your promised land to worship me. No, God wants us to worship him mm-hmm. on our journey, even when we're wandering in the wilderness mm-hmm. on our way to a greater, bigger promise, he wants us to worship him. Yeah. So it was, it was portable. They could break it down mm-hmm. and move, and then when they would stop, because God was leading them, they would set back up the uh, the tabernacle. And it predates, it predates the temple. It does. So the tabernacle itself comes about after the Exodus. We walked through this the past couple of weeks. We've talked about the Exodus. We've talked about uh, the Passover, the Passover lamb being set, set up. So now the people have been delivered, but there's a problem. How are we going to worship our God now? Because the wilderness comes before they enter the promised land. So, so God himself decides as he meets with them at Mount Sinai that he's going to, one, give them the law. So at Mount Sinai, he gives the law to Moses. And then he also goes through several chapters in Exodus, and we're going to look at some of them, where he gives Moses very specific instructions on how to build what he's calling the tabernacle, this, this place, this temporary meeting place and then the rest of the book through 40 uh, goes through them actually building it and then we see God's glory filling that place so what we see here is the instructions to build it and then they set out to go ahead and build that tabernacle to be distinct from the temple itself right correct and and let me also say this so God uh, was the one who gave the details for it. The, yeah. the, this idea of a tabernacle was not a man's idea it was a divine idea and he oversaw the project which tells me that apparently there's some uh there's some very important symbolism in it because mm-hmm. god wanted the details to be a certain way exactly right and so that's different than the temple mm-hmm. and that's what the writer of hebrews says in hebrews 8 he says that this is a copy and shadow of the heavenly dwelling 
So God is kind of giving the Israelites a preview, and which is why he's so detailed of what the heavenly dwelling looks like. And we'll get kind of that picture as we work through the furniture in the tabernacle and work through the tabernacle itself. Now let's talk a little bit about the temple mm -hmm. because I, we want you all to know the difference between the tabernacle and the temple. So the, t the tabernacle is that temporary dwelling, but then the temple comes up when they actually get into the land. And now you have King David who wants to build the temple, but God says, you can't do it. You got too much blood on your hands, right? So he turns to his son, Solomon, who uh, actually sets out to build the temple. But one of the clear distinctions, and Pastor Thomas just mentioned this, is that as he's building the temple, you won't hear instructions from God. You won't hear that detailed instruction from God to build the temple, that first temple. So the temple shows up and, and Solomon has tons of people working on that project and it is ultimately built. But then what happens? Yeah, the, the first temple built by Solomon, it was glorious and beautiful. Uh, but in 587 BC, it was destroyed by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's army, mm. uh, which was a blow to the nation of Israel. Mm. This invading force, it, they destroy uh, the temple, which was the heart of their worship and their religion, and uh, which uh, lays uh, the groundwork for a second temple. Mm. And the second temple, uh, it's built after the exile, after they come back from exile. Uh, it's built by uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra uh, also, and uh, these people who come back from out of exile, they build the second temple, and it's modest to say the least. <laughs> it's not as big and beautiful as Solomon's temple. Mm. They, kinda, they were kind of disheartened mm. about it. It's like, wow, mm. you know, this is it? Yeah. Uh, but then... Uh, Years later, King Herod comes on the stage where we're, we're familiar with King Herod from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And he, 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 for 40 years, did a major expansion of, of the Second Temple, which is the one we're more familiar with. Mm -hmm. But here God uses this maniacal evil leader wow. to really rebuild the Second Temple into a glorious structure during the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something about us as people. We are so, so uh, interested in buildings and edifices and the beauty of buildings. And this wasn't beyond folks in Jesus' day, right? Even the disciples, when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem, they're like, we're really excited for you to be able to see this temple. And then Jesus turns around and says, yeah, actually not one stone of this temple is going to be left once. Right. <laughs> once what happens in 70 AD is going to happen, right? So, so Herod's temple, even though arrayed in all that beauty and the disciples were like, this building is so magnificent. Jesus himself saw something bigger than that and something that it pointed to that we're going to talk about in terms of the temple. One of the other things I wanted to mention about the tabernacle itself is that it actually demonstrates something to us. So the Israelites are living in the wilderness in tents. Every one of them has a tent in this wilderness. And they, as they pick up and move, they have to pick up their tents and put them down. So God himself, which is, which is interesting, God himself says, uh, because y'all are dwelling in tents, I'm going to build myself a tent. So he places this tent of meeting right in the middle of all their tents. It's as, as if God is saying, I will condescend, come down, 
and build myself a tent so that I can relate to the experience that you all are having. This is totally different from any other God in the ancient Near East culture. They were all distant, but God himself says, I want my presence to be right there in the midst of all of your wilderness wanderings. Yeah, and it and and, and it really shows the connection that God's want to have with his people, but mm. but don't you also see that's what Jesus did? Mm. He was he's the creator of the universe and yet he was born of a woman. Mm. He mm. he lived in a you know, God of spirit, but he decided to live in the flesh mm. so that he could so that he can fellowship with us and experience the same experiences that we had. Jesus, I mean, I always say the greatest sacrifice is what Jesus allowing himself to be in a per- form of a person yeah. Yeah. And, and, and have to go through the same things that we went through. Mm-hmm. So. so let's talk a little bit about Moses and the what is called the tent of the meeting, which becomes ultimately uh, synonymous with the tabernacle, but... Moses is someone who meets with God often, Mm -hmm. but what we're going to find out is that he probably wasn't the only only person that could have met with God. The other people just refused to do so. Exactly. So let's look at um, Exodus chapter 33 to start our time together. And we'll look at verses number 7 through 11. 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with, to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, here's the interesting thing about this text. Now, as Moses is going to this tent of meeting that he set up outside the camp, folks are watching him. (laughs) It's almost as if they're saying, go on, Moses. (laughs) You go go commune with God. We will watch you do so. We'll watch you do that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know... uh, uh, the, the tabernacle was strategically placed in the center mm-hmm. of the gathering of the people, yeah. uh, and w- which means it was easy access to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it was not called the tent of the meeting of Moses, right? But it was tent of the meeting that that God was really accessible to any of them. Mm-hmm. But what they did was they delegated their personal responsibility to Moses. Mm-hmm. And said, so, "Well, Moses, you go and meet for us mm. instead of taking advantage of this, this, this unique opportunity that here is the Creator of the universe, our Redeemer, mm. and I could go there for myself." Now, Pastor Thomas, I hear what you're saying, but if I see lightning, I see clouds, or pillars of fire, and I'm just gonna go ahead and let Moses do what he got, <laughs> do what he got to do. 
Yeah, but the thing about it was, with all the lightning and the pillar of fire, mm. Moses always came back. Mm. That's good. So maybe I could take a chance too. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, so ultimately, this tent of meeting though becomes the language that is used for the tabernacle of God later in the text. So the tent of meeting moves from the tent of meeting for Moses <laughs> to becoming the tabernacle, which includes a tent inside of it. So we're going to talk about that here in just a second, but we want to talk about the structure of the tabernacle as a whole in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. As Pastor Thomas mentioned, it's right dead in the center of the camp of the Israelites. Um, The tribes are separated north, south, east, west on each side of the tabernacle. The Levites are surrounding the tabernacle itself. So they are moving in the wilderness in this camped out type of atmosphere that has a tabernacle at the dead center which is very intentional Uh, also the structure of the tabernacle moves from east to west so the east side of the tabernacle has the entrance the gate the entrance of the tabernacle and it moves to the west and this is very intentional and it goes back to the garden of eden so when um adam and eve fall they are driven out from the garden and the text tells us that they are driven eastward. Mm-hmm. When we see Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel show up. It says that the people come from the east. Mm-hmm. So God here establishes the tabernacle, the redemptive tabernacle, the tabernacle where his presence comes back to the people of God in such a way that you got to come in from the east side. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's where the folks have gone out away from the presence of God. So you have to enter it from the east side and go west. And as you enter, you'll see different pieces of furniture that we're going to talk about here uh, that the text talk, talks about. Now, as we walk through this, I want you all to be aware of we're not reading the scripture backwards <laughs> because um, the text moves from the most important items to the what would be called be considered the least important but we want to make sure we start from the outside and then move into the uh, holiest place so we're going to start on the outside of the tabernacle so that you all can see how it moves from east to west so if it looks like we're reading backwards we're not really doing so and, and I, once again the tabernacle really does it tells god's redemptive mm-hmm. story to mankind and and i think going from uh from the outside in really we can relate to it personally better. Yeah, I think that's good. So let's start in the courtyard. Uh, Exodus chapter 27, we see the mention of the courtyard in the instructions in chapter number 27. And this courtyard is surrounded by pillars. Uh, It certainly is the casing for the tabernacle itself. We're going to look at verses 9 through 19. Now, as we go through these details, it may seem very detailed, but we're going to talk about some of the important pieces and how they particularly point to Christ. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, 100 cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there should be hangings 100 cubits long. Its pillars shall be 20, and their base is 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars 
and their fillets shall be silver. And then we're going to see them go on and talk about the east side. They're also going to talk about the other side. I'm going to skip down to verse number 17. All the pillars around the court shall be filled with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and the bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all of its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Now, this is the description of the courtyard itself, which is the outside of what's going to be known as the the tabernacle, which moves from three different places, right? The outer court, uh, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. So we're going to look at those pieces. But what we see here in this courtyard language is that it was facing east, always arranged facing east, but it also provided... What this does, it provides the Israelites some form of permanence, which sounds weird, in the wilderness. So up until that point, they didn't have anything built that so showed them that, that God was permanently with them. But now as they're building this courtyard, it's, it demonstrates to them that God now is going to be in their midst, in the midst of all of this. Yeah, let me ask you one question. How many entrances did it have? So there was one entrance. One. One entrance. Not not different entrances, not side entrances, back nope. back door entrances. Can't, just can't climb entrance. over the wall, can't wow. can't sneak in the back door, can't have your friend wow. let you in the back door. So even back then, there was one way to God. <sighs> yes, sir. Wow. That right there, that'll preach. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just wondering. So there was only one way in. Okay. One, one yeah. door, one gate, one entrance right. to get into the presence of God. That was it. And we're going to put a pin right there <laughs> because I hope y'all caught that one. <laughs> but we're going to come back to it. Mm-hmm. So the courtyard here is set up in a way where there's an outer court, an outer court. And in the outer court, we're going to see uh, this brazen altar <laughs> show up. Uh, this brazen altar, and it shows up in Exodus chapter 27, mm-hmm. uh, verses 1 through 8. And again, like I said, we're reading backwards, but that's because we're trying to help you all see the process of get coming into the actual tabernacle itself. So this, this bronze altar uh, is made of acacia wood, verse number 1, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and the height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on, one, on two sides of the altar when it's carried. You shall make hollow with boards. As it has been shown to you on this mountain, so shall it be. So there's this bronze altar. The first piece of furniture that you see when you walk into this tabernacle or this courtyard is a bronze altar. Mm -hmm. And this is intentional in this text. Like when you see bronze, 
in the Old Testament, bronze is always a symbol of judgment. Yes. That there is judgment that needs to occur, and this has to do with their sins. So there's a bronze altar there that's set up that's saying to them, in order to get into the tabernacle, to move through the tabernacle, there's one thing that's required, a sacrifice. Yes, and that's where the sacrifices were offered. The animal sacrifice were off, offered on this altar. So the very first thing that you have to acknowledge is your sinfulness, mm-hmm. that, that there must be a sacrifice. I'm unworthy to go into the presence of a holy God. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I have to do is have to deal with my sin issue. And we're going to see this play mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. little by little or on different levels as we go deeper and deeper. But, but, but we have no right to go to be in the presence of a holy God. Matter of fact, uh, mm. we see Jesus very clearly in this one. Mm. I think it's John 1, 1 and 29. John 1 and 29, it says, The next day he, uh, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God mm. who takes away the sin of the world. Mm. So we see Jesus uh, being that sacrifice yeah. for our sins. Yeah. That, this brazen, a bronze altar where sacrifices were made for the sins of the people mm-hmm. was representative, symbolic of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will literally become our sin sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so that's very important because as you see the bronze altar, that's also a symbol of confession. Yes that the priests themselves would have to confess the people's sins before God before they even were able to go into the presence of God. Right. And really speaks to the importance of confession even in our lives. I I don't think we give enough effort to confession uh, in the life of believers because a lot of us feel like once we are saved, we have arrived and there's no need for this ongoing confession. But First John tells us that we're, if we confess our sins, this is written to Christians, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the priests there are called to confess the sins of the people. And then also there is a fire mm-hmm. on the altar. Can I say something about unconfessed sins? Yes, sir. Uh, unconfessed sins does not put you out of the family. But unconfessed sins can break your fellowship with the Heavenly Father. Mm. That's why we need to continue to confess our sins as believers uh, each and every day so that we can remain in good fellowship uh, Mm. with God. Mm. You can be in the family, Mm. but you can have broken fellowship. And so we want to make sure our fellowship is good with the Father. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and the fact that confession is kind of this ongoing process Mm -hmm. is reflected in the animal sacrifice itself. They were required to burn the whole animal sacrifice, not just parts of it. And so so when we're confessing our sins and we're trying to be sanctified, move closer and closer to being like Jesus, like there's some stuff that we confess that we only want God to take care of partially mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's some stuff that we really like mm-hmm. um, in our sins. But what God requires and what this text tells us God requires is that he requires the whole thing. The whole burnt animal sacrifice. And why is that? Well, because Jesus gave his whole body. He gave him whole his whole self on the cross. So when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, 
Jesus didn't have anything left right. when he gave himself on the cross. And he wants each and every one of us as we are coming to him, confessing our sins and say, hey, I want you to leave here without having anything left of that. So I think that's important for us as the people of God to know and to understand. In addition to that, Leviticus 9 tells us that that God himself actually lit the fire. Mm -hmm. But it was the it was the people who were required to keep it going. Exactly. That when I light the fire, I'm requiring you to keep it going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so there's something on behalf of the people and on behalf of the priest in this text that are asking them to say, hey, God may be that initial flame, but he's asking you to maintain it. And that's what our scripture study is all about, is being able to maintain the fire that God has placed in each and every one of us. Even though uh, salvation God God does the work of salvation, but there's still human responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, we still have our part in making sure, like you say, the fire, the flame continues to go. And mm -hmm. we talked about disciplines earlier on mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the study, that, that those disciplines are what we do to help the fire continue to burn within us as believers of Jesus Christ. That's good. That's good. So we're seeing a lot of bronze yeah. in this text on the courtyard, and that's very intentional. We talked about bronze being judgment, but as we move closer to the Holy of Holies, you'll see that the um, materials will change. Yeah, but we still have the, the basin. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about okay. the basin here. Okay. Yeah. So the, the basin is uh, the next piece that we're going to mm -hmm. talk about in Exodus chapter 30. And we'll look at verses 17, 17 through 21. And this bronze basin, again, is in the courtyard. It's in the outer court. And listen to the description of that in Exodus chapter 31, verses 17, 30, 17 through 21. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put the water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. God, this is so serious to the Lord that if you don't wash in this basin, that you're going to die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so they may, they may not die. He repeats it in verse number 21. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offsprings throughout their generations. So what we see here is the priests are called to wash not just their hands, but their feet as well before they enter the holy place to minister before God. What does that mean, washing of the hands and the feet? What are, what are we getting at here in this text? Yeah, uh, God wants us to understand that uh, Christ cleanses us hmm. uh, from our sins. Not, not only does he pays for our sins, atones for our sins, but he cleanses us. And hmm. so this washing of the hand and feet represents the cleansing power of Jesus Christ in our lives as believers. Hmm. And we need that uh, every day. Yeah, that's uh, good. And I think, matter of fact, uh, where's that, Romans Six. Mm-hmm. 
Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Hmm. Hmm. So what you're saying to me is that baptism mm-hmm. is the basin of the New Testament yes. believer. Yes. That through being washed, through the forgiveness of our sins, that now we're able to approach a holy God as the priests themselves were able to approach a holy God. And here's the thing that's important for me as I read this text and read it against the one in Exodus is that even in our service, whether it's volunteering, whether it's being on pastoral staff, whether it's being a Christian in the marketplace, is that we still have dirty hands even in our service and that there's a continuing need for the washing and regeneration of the word of God and the spirit of God, who is the ultimate source of our regeneration. So just because you've been dipped in some water, don't mean that you don't need that continued washing and regeneration because uh, God requires that of us because, man, there are times where we do get our hands dirty. And our feet dirty. (laughs) It was hands and feet. Mm, And mm. so as they moved about just everyday life, they were getting dirty but they had to wash oh, before they entered to the presence of God. That's good. That's good. Let's talk about the holy place. Now, yes. so we've been in the outer court so far. Mm-hmm. So we got the sacrifice in the outer court. We got the basin. The hands are washed. Yes. Now it's time to enter what is called the holy place. Mm-hmm. And there are furniture pieces in the holy place that you all need to be aware of that are intentionally placed there that are important for us in understanding the tabernacle of God, but not only that, understanding the presence of Christ in the tabernacle itself. And that first piece we're going to talk about is the golden candlestick or lampstand or lampstand. And it's in Genesis, uh, Exodus 25, Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40. Remember, this is in the the holy place, so this is a little bit further into the tabernacle. And here are the instructions that Moses got. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Now we're changing the material. We went from bronze, now we're in gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calaxes, and its flowers shall be one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side on it and three branches out of the other side of it three cups made like almond blossoms each with calyx and flowers on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms each with calyx and flowers on the other branch so for the six branches going out of the lampstand now i'm gonna pause there because i want to make sure everybody has a picture of what this lampstand looks like it is a lampstand that has six branches on each side, and then there's another one, and it has kind of this golden stand in the middle. Now, we talked just a few minutes ago about its connection with Genesis. 
Now, what this lampstand, one of the things that is supposed to help you connect with and what Israelites would have seen and known is that this lampstand actually represents the tree of life Mm -hmm. in Genesis in that it looks like a tree and it looks like something that's going to help you get access to the presence of God. The Holy of Holies is actually the holy place is a dark place. Mm -hmm. And so in scripture, there was a need, a practical need for light, but then also it was a symbolic need to say that in dark places, you're always going to need light. So, so here we have a dark place in the holy place that is being illuminated by this candle, this lampstand that has six branches on each side. This golden. Golden. Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, why don't you go ahead and tell the symbolism of gold? Why would I, why do you want me to tell them? Because you talked about the difference between bronze and gold. So, <laughs> so, so bronze is about judgment, but gold, you're always going to find gold in Scripture as it pertains to royalty and holiness divinity. Yeah. and divinity. Yes. So what we see here, you're going to see all the pieces in the holy place, in the Holy of Holies, are going to be made of gold. Yes. Inside and out. You're going to see it all over. Yeah. So uh, John chapter 8. In verse 12, the New Testament, tongue-in-cheek, gives some light <laughs> on this, this issue here. Uh, John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows, follows me will not just walk in darkness, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Mm. And so he's saying, I'm the light of the world. And so once again, we see this lampstand representing Jesus who goes back and says, hey, mm. uh, he's talking to these Jewish folk. You ought to be familiar with me. Mm. I am the light of the world. Mm. Jesus brings light to darkness. He, he illuminates. Mm. He leads. He guides. He is truth. Mm. And so even though we live in a dark world, Mm. With falsehoods, distortions, Jesus is the true light mm. for for all believers. Yeah, and that's what we see earlier in John, right? John 1, 3, and light has shined in darkness, speaking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so in Revelation 1, there's an interesting passage there in Revelation 1 where it says, the one who stands in the midst of the lampstands. Mm-hmm. So there's this picture of this same lampstand, and he's providing it the light. Right. So he is the actual light for the lampstands, even though they have a symbolic light in the tabernacle itself. So what you're seeing in the tabernacle of God is pointing to a Christ who ultimately is going to alight the world and then calls each and every one of us to let our light shine before people so that they can see our good works and give glory to our God who is in heaven. And and the good news for us today is that it does not matter how dark the Mm. world is, Mm. light always overcomes darkness. Every time. Mm. There's you never find an instance where darkness overcomes light. Mm. Light always overcomes darkness. Mm. And so that's our hope Mm. as believers that even though this world may get crazier and crazier, Mm. we serve a God, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. He will conquer every time. That's good. That's good. And that's what the psalmist recounts in Psalm 27. The Lord Mm -hmm. is my light and my salvation. There's a connection between 
the light of the world Mm -hmm. and the salvation of the world. And that connection, that causal connection is Christ Jesus himself who was shined his divine light into this dark world and then turns around and says, now I've called you Mm -hmm. out of darkness Mm -hmm. into my marvelous light. Yes, and we're all called to be light bearers ourselves. Mm. That's good, that's good. So let's look at the the next thing. And this this one is actually next to the the lampstand. Mm -hmm. And it is called, in many instances, the table of shoe bread. Mm -hmm. That's a King James version, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, other texts will call it the bread of the presence, right. the bread of the presence. And we find that in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus 25. I hope you all are seeing the Christ connection for each one of these pieces. And it's very intentional on God's part as he's laying out each piece of the tabernacle. So Exodus 25 verses 23 through 30. You shall make table of acacia wood two cubits shall be its length a cubit its breadth and a cubit and half its height you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it that's important mm-hmm. and you shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide with a molding of gold around the rim and you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the pole to carry the, the table you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So this bread here, uh, this show bread here in this text, is really a table that is set up for bread that is to be set before them continually. Now, there are two sets of bread on the table. Uh, Each set has six pieces of bread. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Leviticus tells us also that they're supposed to sprinkle a little frankincense on it. They put a little flavoring in it. And so what it's supposed to represent Now, we do know ultimately the bread is Christ himself, but it's supposed to represent the priest presenting the people to God as a sweet spelling sacrifice to God. So the people themselves are the bread of God. That 12 Mm -hmm. pieces of bread are supposed to represent all the people of all the tribes and the priests are presenting them to God. Now, I told y'all that molding was important. It's important because the molding was supposed to prevent the bread Mm -hmm. from falling off the table. Mm -hmm. There's a persevering or preservation character to to that molding. It's almost as if God is saying, once I get you on the table, I'm not going to let you fall off the table. And so so for us as believers, as God has placed us, as Christ has placed us on the table and said, these are yours. God and Christ are going to preserve us by his spirit as we continue to go through all this chaos in this world that God's saying in this text, he's saying, I got that molding around that bread so it don't fall. And guess what? I got my spirit around you so you don't fall. Yeah, it, it can't be knocked off. Hmm. 
Mm. can't be stolen or anything like that. It's it's preserved, it's protected. Mm. And that's the great news of us as believers that we're able to persevere mm. because God God has us. Mm. And and so yeah, we see it in that we're being presented to God because the priests are saying, "Hey, we've done our job. We're done. That's what Christ does." Mm. He says that in John, "Hey, everyone that you've given to me, yeah. guess what? I have not lost them." I have them. I give them to you. Mm. But we also see Christ as the bread. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we see that in John. Mm-hmm. Uh, John chapter 6. Yeah. Yep. John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. And then, of course, he goes on. Mm. Uh and continue to talk, but 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 this is Jesus speaking, mm. and he says, "I am this bread of life," yeah. and and we have to understand that what he's saying is, mm. I, "I'm the one that gives life. I give substance and meaning to life. There was no, yeah. uh, there was n- no in, no item more important than bread." Mm. For these people, that's what gave them life. I mean, if you didn't have bread, then you starved yeah. to death. It yeah. was the main uh, element of food, food element during that time. Mm. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I give mm. life. I sustain life, not just existence. That's he good. used this word life, yeah. talking about a fullness of life that only Jesus Christ gives us true life. Mm. There are mm. people who are existing, mm. but only those who have believed in Jesus Christ have true life. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So that's where we see the table of showbread. Mm-hmm. Now let's look at the altar of incense here uh, in the text in Exodus 30. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to read it, but <clears throat> they set up a altar of incense, uh, chapter 30. Y'all can write this down, verses 1 through 10 uh, in the text here. And we see this altar that shows up that is built. And every morning, uh, let's start in verse 7, Aaron shall burn uh, fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamp, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So they set up this altar of incense, and that incense has this smoke that goes up out of it. That scripture tells us um, in Psalm 141 that that incense is actually the prayers of the saints, Mm -hmm. the prayers of believers going up to God and God hears and responds to those prayers. So the altar of incense is important here in the tabernacle because they represent the the prayers of the people going to God and the, and the priests are able to do that through that altar of incense. Yeah, that was one of their primary jobs as priests is that they were to be the mm-hmm. ones to intercede on the behalf of the people. Yeah. And good. so that's one of the roles of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior mm-hmm. is that he's our uh, intercessor. Mm-hmm. And so, matter of fact, we see that in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. Mm-hmm where this writer of Hebrews, he says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by by death from continuing in office. But he holds, talking about Christ, his priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. Mm-hmm. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So mm-hmm. Jesus Christ is in heaven interceding for us. And mm-hmm. I know the question is, so if he's finished this, like he said on the cross, why does he have to continue to intercede for us mm-hmm. in heaven? Mm-hmm. It's because we have an adversary, the devil, Satan, who constantly, continually accuses us before God. So Jesus constantly, continually intercedes on our behalf. That's He's good. our defense attorney. That's good. That's good. And so this is important, though, because we started with sacrifice. <laughs> and now we have the prayers being lifted up to God. But what we have to be clear about and understand is that God here in the text accepts the prayers because he's already accepted the sacrifice. And you can't do that out of order. Right. Like he has to have accepted the sacrifice prior to accepting the prayers of the saints through the priest here in the text. And I think that when tragedies and things happen and we even hear people culturally saying this our thoughts and prayers are with Mm -hmm. you well as believers we know that that God hears and responds to our prayers so it shouldn't be just words for us because our smoke Mm -hmm. gets to the Lord (laughs) and so for us when we commit to pray for people when we say we're going to pray for people then as a believer, you have to pray for them because as someone who was accepted, this, who who sacrificed through Christ has been accepted and now you're justified and you're able to approach the throne boldly, the writer of Hebrews says, it is our obligation to pray to God so that the uh, aroma of our prayers may reach God's nostrils. Yeah. This incense, it had a, had a, a certain flavor or smell to it. I don't know if you've ever been to someone's house who smoked. Uh, mm-hmm. But but when you leave it, it's on you, even though you didn't smoke. I've been other places where people smoke. But we, yeah, yeah, don't talk was, about that. That was BC. Don't, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. <laughs> so, so it's on you. It, 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 it sticks on your clothes and so forth. And that's the way our prayers ought to be. Mm-hmm. It, it ought to stick on folk that come around us mm. when we pray for folk and intercede in their behalf. Mm, mm. Let's let's uh, turn to the Holy of Holies because mm-hmm. I want to make sure we we touch the Holy of Holies because we've moved from the outer court to the holy place. We've seen the furniture there, but there is specific furniture in this place that is called the Holy of Holies. Some of y'all may love Daryl Coley's Beyond the Veil. Well, this is what happens beyond the veil. Yeah behind the veil of this tabernacle. And we're going to find a couple of different pieces. Um, let's not look at the veil. So Exodus 26 verses 31 through 33 uh, talks about the veil that actually separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The veil had these cherubim or angels that were in, embedded in it um, that helped to separate what this was this holy place from the place where God's presence actually resided again that harkens back to Genesis mm-hmm. because when he kicked them out of the garden guess what they did he he placed cherubim mm-hmm. in the garden with these flaming swords to guard the presence of God now 
in that place. So people are trying to get back in, but he has these cherubim here and he replicates it here with the veil in the temple. So how do you get beyond the veil and what's beyond the veil? Yeah, well, the, the great thing is that uh, the veil in the tabernacle, hmm. uh, which which faded away because a temple hmm. came about uh, at the death of Jesus Christ, that veil was rent from hmm. top to bottom. That's the good news hmm. Is, hmm. is for us as believers, there's no longer a veil that separates us from the presence of God. That's good. That's good. So let's look at a couple of pieces hmm. that are in the Holy of Holies. The first is the Ark of the Covenant, and we find that in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 16. Uh, verse 10 says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, uh, two cubits and a half shall it be its length. Verse 11, You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it. Again, gold in on the outside and the inside. You shall make it uh, molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Now, these rings are important for this particular piece, the Ark of the Covenant, because they would use these rings to carry the Ark uh, because they couldn't touch the Ark itself. We saw that with Uzzah mm -hmm. later in Scripture where he touched the Ark itself. Well, first of all, he built uh, this ox cart to put it on. So the purpose of actually putting these rings in here and being able to lift it up was to say that we're lifting God mm -hmm. higher than the people, mm -hmm. that God is in his exalted place above the people as we carry God's presence with us. Mm -hmm. And when Uzzah made the ox cart, he's saying God is common enough for an animal to carry him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he made a mistake on the front end and then ultimately touched the altar and died. But for them making this, Ark of the Covenant and having those poles, they're able to now lift God up in his proper place and carry his presence in his exalted position. Yeah, and, and his putting it, uh, talking about Uzzah, putting it on this cart was to make it easy, and guess what? It's not supposed to be easy. Mm. We're, 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 we're supposed to umph it yes, to sir. whatever it takes to make the <laughs> sacrifice to lift up God. That's good. Maybe unpopular, mm. but we need to lift him up. That's good. So this ark included on the inside a bowl of manna, mm -hmm. God's provision, mm -hmm. uh, Aaron's rod, God's priesthood, mm -hmm. and then it included the Ten Commandments, God's precepts mm -hmm. or commands. So we got all of this included in this ark that is sitting here in the Ark of the Covenant, and it points to Jesus. All three of them point to Jesus, yeah. the manna which came from heaven, mm -hmm. which provided food for them as they were in the wilderness. Uh, Aaron's rod. We know we see Jesus as our uh, high priest. Mm. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments. He, mm. he fulfills that. Yeah. Mm. He was perfect in keeping it. Mm. Now, we, we cannot talk about the tabernacle of God without talking about the mercy seat. Yes. Because this is shout you. Okay. So we got to talk about the mercy seat here in the text. And I want to make sure we, we hit this one. It's in Exodus 25, mm -hmm. verses 17 through 22. It tells them, you shall make a mercy seat. That right there is enough for me. Mm -hmm. Of mm -hmm. pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Mm 
make one cherub on one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will be, meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So this mercy seat is crafted. And what it is, is it's literally the lid of the ark of the covenant. So we put Moses' rod in there, Aaron's rod in there. We put the Ten Commandments in there. We put the bowl of manna in there. But then there's a lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant upon which God says he will descend now and talk with the people. This mercy seat, given its name, is the place where God's wrath is turned away from the people and he now disseminates his grace from this mercy seat here in the text. And this lid was the reason he does so. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately what we do find is that the lid doesn't just become an item in the tabernacle, but the lid itself is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That he becomes the lid by which God himself disseminates mercy from his throne of grace. That all the pieces of the tabernacle leading up to now, the sacrifice, the table of showbread, table of presence, the altar of incense, lead up to this moment where this lid is placed on the Ark of the Covenant and God says, now I'm ready to dispense mercy to my people. Yeah, it, 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 and that's why it's important for us to, to go point by point because it all leads us up to this conclusion mm -hmm. Uh, that Jesus Christ is able to dispense mercy to us, all of us who are, who are unworthy, mm. now we can enjoy God's mercy and his grace mm. because of all these other items that we see. It mm. leads up to this conclusion, this climax, mm. that we're recipients of his generous, great mercy in our everyday lives. And mercy is withholding what we do what we deserve mm. punishment that we deserve mm. we deserve to be punished but god withholds it and dispenses mercy to us wow so so how do we find christ in the tabernacle <laughs> well he's all over it y'all and we find that ultimate expression and you've mentioned this earlier in john chapter 1 verse 14 where scripture says that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. The Greek word there is skeneo, which literally means tabernacled. Yes. That Jesus himself took on flesh and spread out his tent <laughs> among his people and decided to tabernacle among us and say that every piece of this tabernacle that you just went through points to me. And I have now become the ultimate mercy seat who dispenses God's grace. And we see the culmination of it as we talk about the big picture here in Revelation chapter 22. As we close our time together, I want to read that text mm -hmm. 
and just reflect on just how amazing God's picture and his story is from creation all the way through to the end in Revelation 22. Verses one through three. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the ultimate vision of the city to come where we see the lamb of God who is that burnt offering sacrifice that we see we see that there's an eternal light that shows up where you no longer need that golden lampstand that the ultimate garden of Eden experience where the tree of life and the rivers of life flow through it is going to be the consummation of God's recreation through Christ Jesus and the tabernacle is to point us to that truth, to point us to that hope, even when our bodies break down, that God himself is the one who ultimately recreates us and restores us. Yeah. So what God is doing is bringing us back. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a redemption story that's so far 6,000 years in the making. And uh, he's going to complete us and bring us back totally to where we were in the beginning at a place where Adam and Eve were free to commune with him and have a relationship with him uh, and live freely. And that's what he's going to do for us as believers. He's going to bring us all the way back. Mm -hmm. There's a tree in the garden. Mm -hmm. There's a tree here in uh, the book of Revelation. And so he brings us back. God is not defeated. He's taking his time working this thing out. One person, one believer at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growth Factor podcast, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. We are grateful that you've been with us throughout this entire season for this series, Make It Make Sense. We do hope that it has helped you all to work through observation, investigation, and application as you look for Christ all over Scripture. If you have not learned anything in this series, know that Christ is on every page. So as you read Scripture, Old Testament or New, uh, continue to look for him as you continue to grow in him. I want you to stay tuned for our next season. We'll announce that pretty soon, but we're grateful for you all being faithful listeners. As we continue to work through the summer, I want you all to do us a favor. Go over to our Facebook group where we'll give you updates. It is the Growth Factor group led by our online, online campus pastor, Chris McDonald. We'll give you updates over there, so make sure you go over and join that group as well as continue to follow and subscribe to the podcast. And we are looking forward to coming back in the fall and being with you all. Grace and peace to you all. This has been The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. 
Be sure to follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our Facebook group, The Growth Factor, for daily motivational content. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening. Thank you.